good morning, men. Thank you for being here. It's, uh, it, was, it was a timely break at the end of last year, and I've missed, missed this time together. And uh, even just the, the study and preparation and how the Lord uses that in my own heart has been wonderful uh, the last two weeks or so. And so what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to start with kind of an intro, give a little bit of overview of the plans for the next year, um, what to expect, and, and even uh, just kind of what we're going after here. And then uh, we'll take a short break. We do have folders and handouts coming. Uh, that should, should be here shortly. And um, so we'll take like a three-minute break, get all that material, and then come back in for the lesson in uh, maybe 10 or 15 minutes. So how about I open our time in prayer, and we'll talk a little bit more. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these men. And Lord, most of all, thank you for your grace and your great mercy that you have lavished upon us. And thank you that we can be called uh, children of the Most High God. Lord, as we embark over the next nine months uh, through a number of different lessons and care for one another around these things, Lord, we want first and foremost for you to be glorified in our lives. Uh, we want our love for you to increase, uh, both in, in size, but also in consistency. And um, Lord, we pray that you would use these mornings together and the fruit of that uh, to that end. Lord, help us, help us to love you and love each other well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I want to talk just a little bit about the purpose of EQ. Uh, it's really a two-year cyclical program that allows for people to enter in at any time. So many of you I know started up last year, went through the first year, now you're in it, um, going to the second year, and the, the intention is that it would just keep going through uh, the material, cycling, and with some minor tweaks and adjustments, but be a means to really laying a, a firm foundation in regards to the Christian walk, the Christian faith, and, and the Christian's desire to cultivate a deeper love and knowledge of our Savior and faithfulness to Him. And so just by way of reminder for some, and just to put in front of some of you who maybe this is the first time here, what is the point of EQ? What are we going after? What's the purpose of why we get up at oh dark 30 and come here and join together on Friday mornings? Well, it's this. We, we desire to disciple, equip, and encourage the men and then also the women of Gilbert Bible Church to grow in deeper love for God and obedience to Jesus Christ, and faithfulness in their homes and in the body of Christ, that God might be glorified by the ever-increasing holiness and usefulness of his people. That's what we're going after. We do this by working through biblical fundamentals of the primary Christian disciplines pertaining to the heart, home, and ministry. You'll hear us talk about D1, D2, D3. Those are disciplines. Discipline one, discipline two, discipline three. And I'll talk a little bit more about what those are in a moment. But they're, they're uh, essentially care for your heart, faithfulness in your home, diligence in ministry. Your faithfulness, heart, faithfulness in your home, faithfulness in ministry, and what God calls you to be as a, as a man of God. As well as we'll be covering various key doctrines and Christian practices as uh, prescribed from scripture as scripture sets forth. These are foundational. They're fundamental uh, to the Christian life, not as in something that we have to get through to move on to something else, but in regards to what uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians um, uh, 
uh, not First Corinthians. What is it? First uh, Corinthians 15, first importance, uh, the gospel, right? That, that the gospel is of first importance. And not first in the sense that you are exposed to the gospel and then you move on to all these other things, but it's actually the foundation on which everything else is built. And if you ever neglect that foundation, the rest of your life, all the things you might build on top of that foundation are going to be um, uh, vulnerable. <laughs> vulnerable is probably a, a way to say it. That if, if you neglect or compromised, straight up compromised, if the foundation wastes away and is completely neglected, then those other things will be compromised as well. Now those should have your names on them, right? Perfect. Thank you, Tom. And so that's what we're going after. <laughs> Labor of love. All right, so uh, what are the expectations? What are the expectations for EQ? Uh, we encourage everybody. Do you have one for me, Tom? I do. We encourage everybody to, as part of heart shepherding, to be in the word daily. Uh, and with that, we encourage individuals to, to come up with a plan to intentionally be in God's word, to work through God's word faithfully. And there's, there should be handouts as well. Did she? Okay. All right. We'll grab the handouts during, during break um, in just a minute. So uh, what are the expectations? We encourage men to be in the word daily. Part of shepherding your heart is intentional devotion with God. Uh, with that, uh, make a plan. You know, make a plan of what you're going to read. We, we're, God works in all sorts of different ways, undeniably, but we discourage just, uh, hey, I'm going to flip to a page and trust the Lord to just give me something randomly, but no, work through God's word intentionally, systematically work through God's word. And with that, uh, one of the encouragements that we put before you men is, is to uh, aspire to read through all of God's word, to know the entirety of scripture. And so with that, uh, a reading plan that would take you through the Bible in a year is, is highly encouraged. If you've never done that, it is so fruitful, so beneficial. You really should desire to have your heart exposed to the entire counsel of the Lord. Um, that's not a, not a mandate, but a strong encouragement to, if, if you haven't done that, do something like that. And if you need recommendations on different Bible reading plans, uh, we're happy to give those to you. Also, participation. Uh, would love for you to be engaged, be involved. Uh, we'll split into groups after the lesson. It's an opportunity for us to encourage one another, interact with the material, um, but be engaged in that way. And then also we encourage prayerful contemplation of the lessons, that the things that we cover, that you would take them to heart. There's uh, questions for consideration at the end of every lesson. And at the end of those lessons, um, take some time in consideration of those, to take them before the Lord in prayer and, and to ponder those questions. We don't have uh, regular homework. So there's not an expectation of something that you take home and then you come and you turn in. Uh, but the reality is, is you will get out of this in large part what you put into it. And so if you kind of come and attend and then that's not on your mind anymore, uh, there will be a certain degree that you benefit to, to the time that we're putting in together. 
if you prayerfully contemplate the lessons throughout the week, visit those considerations, um, undoubtedly you'll, you'll benefit from those things as well. Also an expectation is just a, a heart to serve others. There will certainly be times when you won't be able to be here. Uh, when you're, you may have to leave early, something might come up, but think about your involvement in EQ as more than just you. Your being here has profound effects on the whole, on the group. And think about, we should always think about the body of Christ this way, that the body of Christ is not something that we consume for our personal benefit, but the body of Christ is something we're a part of. We're vital members. God's intention is that as we're connected, properly functioning, we, we uh, cause the growth of the body. It's God's divine intention that the body causes the growth of the body. And so just keep that in mind when you miss, if it's man, I'm just so tired, I'm just going to stay home. Recognize that that does have an impact on the whole. Um, and, and let uh, the fact that there is a, an attitude of consideration of others, of being eager to serve one another in your participation, uh, help influence your decision in those moments. Like I said, there may be times when you need to stay home and you need to get that extra hour, hour and a half of rest or, or whatever. There may be times when you have other obligations, that's understandable. Um, but just commit to having an attitude of wanting to serve others in this. And then lastly, attendance when able. And uh, so be here when you can, make it a priority. And if you can't, be faithful to listen to the lessons in your absence. Uh, there, I believe Karis emails them out, but then they're also posted online under equipping men and women. So those are the expectations. Any questions, comments on any of that? Oh, there's also a podcast. Yes. Gilbert Bible Church. If you search Gilbert Bible Church, it'll come up. And then there's one for sermons and there's one for EQ. Is that how that works? Is that right? Yep. So if you'd prefer to not have the YouTube video, but be able to listen, you can subscribe to that. You should subscribe to that anyway. You should just have that access. Um, I think the second one's called Classes. Classes. Okay. And if you have questions about that, just uh, let Sam know or let me know, and I'll ask Sam. Okay, any other questions, comments? That's helpful. Okay, uh, before we jump into our lesson, I want to talk a little bit uh, about the discipline one, discipline two, discipline three. Discipline one is the call to shepherd our hearts, and we're going we're gonna to visit these various disciplines, and in fact, some of our lessons, like the lesson today, is rooted on cultivating a faithfulness to shepherding our heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart or guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the wellspring of life. The heart is the central command for the man. Uh, it's it's the, what encompasses your inner being, the, the thought central, command central for who you are is the heart, and God calls us to keep that, to guard that, to intentionally direct that, to fortify that with truth. And when we are called to holiness, we're called to honor God, we have to actually direct ourselves in the ways that it goes. And we obviously know that uh, both explicitly and implied in scripture is the reality that the only reason we can do that is because of the spirit of God dwelling in us. It's only God's grace. It's his enabling power that allows us to get there, but there's also the clear command and expectation from scripture that we pursue love for God, that we pursue holiness of life, that we pursue lives of worship and devotion to God, and that doesn't come about passively. It comes about 
through intentionally directing our hearts, shepherding our hearts in the way that we should go. And as we do that, the first area of influence, the first area of our life that should that should feel the impact, that should see the impact, that should be impacted by the impact that God has on our own life is our homes. And so, you know, Paul gives the argument from the lesser to the greater when talking about leadership and service in the church, that a man of God needs to be a good manager of his household. If he can't be a good manager of his household, how will he provide oversight and leadership to the church? And that's true for every man. We need to be faithful in the immediate context that the Lord has us in our homes. It is not honoring to the Lord to have a whole bunch of things that we do and lead others in in the local church and yet neglect faithful, sacrificial, loving, intentional leadership in our homes. We need to be faithful there. And so as we shepherd our hearts, we actually then are equipped to have something to bring into our homes. And that's where you see the escalating nature of these disciplines. If we neglect our heart, we will be really handcuffed in our ability to minister faithfully in our homes. And yet as we shepherd our hearts faithfully, we have something of value and substance to bring into our homes. And then thirdly, as we're being faithful to shepherd our own hearts and that's bleeding out into our homes and our homes are being led faithfully and served diligently, well now we need to step into the church with an eagerness to serve others as well. And sometimes these things can be confused a little bit as if church takes engagement in the church, involvement in the church, kind of plays second fiddle until I have a bunch of time with my family or feel good about times with my family. That's not what we're saying. You're a Christian. You are to be connected to the local church. Part of your leadership of your family, part of your care for your home is through exemplary and sacrificial priority of being engaged in the church. So you you shouldn't have a pattern of, well, we're not going to go to church. We're not going to go to fellowship group. We're not going to engage in body life. We're not going to have people over for dinner because we just really need to get a few months of being together as a family under our belt. That's not what Christians do. Christians are involved in the local church. They're faithful. Do that with your family. Don't run around or leapfrog your family to engagement in the church if you're involved in every men's ministry, every Bible study, if you're getting together with guys all the time in church uh, in that context, but you neglect to ever open your Bible with your family, that's a problem. That's a problem. So the solution isn't just completely cut off interaction with the body. The solution is be faithful in your home so that then you're better positioned to endear your family to the local church as God desires us to be and you can step in with purpose and a clear conscience and a track record of faithfulness. And then you step into this church and you serve and encourage and bless others and are involved in all of the one another commands and eagerness to serve and bless others. You embrace those things. So that's the overview of heart home ministry. We'll talk about those more over the course of the year, uh, but that's a, that's a brief overview. So That's what I wanted to talk about before we jumped into our lesson. Anything on that? Any questions, comments? Okay, we got the folders, we got the handouts. Do we need a break or are we okay to keep going? Keep going, okay. All right, this morning we are gonna talk about religious affections. And really, uh, originally I 
I, I had in mind to call this um, cultivating a love for God or cultivating a love for your Savior. And I changed it to directing yourself to love God because that's the call. We're, we're not trying to conjure up greater affections here. We are trying to adhere to the direct, specific command from God to love him. We may not always feel that way. And we should desire to cultivate deeper affections. But the reality is, is that the call to love God is far greater than simply affections for him. And that's what we're going to talk about this, moment, uh, this morning. Every human on the planet that has ever existed has had before them the obligation to love God. Every human has the duty, has the call, the instruction to love God. And he is the supreme being, eternally existing, uniquely holy. He is pure. He is righteous. And God only possesses character. Every one of God's attributes, every, every character that flows out of God that is part of who he is, actually demands love. There's nothing unlovable about God in the slightest. God only possesses character and that, that demands our love. We never love God despite himself. We love each other, and there are certainly elements about each one of us where we choose to love one another despite one another. God is wholly unique. There is never something about God that we choose to love him even though he's a little this way. Everything about him actually demands and calls for us to love him. And yet we're sinners and we know that the heart is deceitful above all else. And one of the biggest deceptions the heart can convince you of is that something other than loving God is better than loving God. Right? That is an ultimate deception because God is supremely lovable. He's supremely wor worthy of our love. And if we ever convince ourselves that loving something else is better than loving God, that is a complete deception of the heart. There is no truth behind the thought that loving anything other than God is better than loving God supremely. And yet for Christians or those who like to play church at times, or just the reality of the human heart, our natural inclination is to reject the graces that the Lord gives, to look to works, to look to religious activities for salvation, to commit ourselves even at times outwardly to conformed behavior, but to know at the heart level or to find at the heart level selfish reasons behind that, and then to miss loving God to miss a relationship with our Lord and Savior. This, this summarizes Israel at the time of Christ perfectly. And even much of Israel's history leading up to Christ was this way, where there was external religious conformity, and yet their hearts were not transformed. They were not wanting God as he is. They wanted a God as they wanted a God. They missed the relationship with God, and thus they rejected Christ. What God desires of us is unadulterated love and devotion to him. And God says, abandon yourself, cling to me, submit to me, live for me, love me with all that you are. That's the command from scripture. And yet we easily mess it up. In fact, there's a warning for us in scripture that in many ways is the catalyst for this lesson. 
Turn to Matthew 7 for just a moment. Matthew 7. And I don't think in in expectations, I I don't think I mentioned this. Typically, the structure of our morning is we start at 6, we go till about 7, give or take, with the lesson, and then we split. Typically, depending on how many men are able to be here, we'll split into two groups and uh, take about a half hour for discussion, and then we try to wrap up right at 7.30. So we'll be going until roughly 7 o'clock this morning. Matthew 7, and then, and then split into our groups. Matthew 7, verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then some of the most disturbing or sobering words in all of Scripture. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These individuals will say, Lord, Lord. They'll actually declare the name of the Lord. Lord, Lord. They're calling him Lord. Right? And yet, what have they neglected? Well, not a bunch of things done for God, although in reality, not knowing God means they weren't actually doing those things for them. But in their mind, they were doing things for God. They were doing things in his name. They were, they were behind his works. And yet, what is the response from Jesus? I never knew you. They look to all of their acts of service. And he says, lawlessness, you you didn't know me. I didn't know you. Salvation, the Christian life, is not an issue of verbal declarations only or some sort of moral conformity. Verbal declarations and moral conformity has to be accompanied and actually rooted out of a heart of submission to God, yielding to God, faith, repentance, turning from a life of selfishness and disobedience to a life of submission. And this is to flow out of a heart of love. There are some who say, Lord, Lord, who declare with their lips the lordship of Jesus and even do things for him, but their heart has not been transformed. They have not yielded to God in faith. They have no true relationship with God. This is helpful when we think through really the entirety of what scripture has to say. God calls Christians to obedience. But that obedience is to flow out of a heart of worship, a heart of belief and relationship and submission. You might be thinking, but Romans 10, 13, how do I reconcile this? They're saying, Lord, Lord, and Paul says in Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Didn't they call on him? Well, Paul also accompanies with this verbal declaration the heart of submission that we're talking about, that Jesus is looking for. In fact, if you just look up to verse 8 in Romans 10, Paul says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth 
Jesus is Lord. And then he also puts with that, coupled with that, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verbal declarations alone don't do anything. It's a heart of belief. And then verse 10, he says, for with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. He's equating these things. The verbal declaration is to be synonymous with a heart of faith. And if those things are separated, if you bifurcate those things, if you push them away from one another, you aren't going to be saved simply by a declaration. And yet what will flow out of you if your heart is truly yielded is a life of worship. And then verse 11 in Romans 10, Paul says, For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. And then you get to, for whoever will call in the name of the Lord will be saved. So this should be a sobering warning and reality for us. We cannot allow ourselves to be engaged in a bunch of Christian activities, to have moral conformity, but to lack a love for our God, to lack genuine belief, submission to him. Rather, everything we do must flow out of our love for God. And this love is not simply going to be reactive in the sense that we hope we wake up one morning and we feel loving towards God. That's not the aim or the goal. We must direct our affections, direct ourselves, direct our lives to live lives of love for God. And this is eternally consequential. This is eternally consequential. In fact, 1 Corinthians 16, 22, Paul says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha. You must direct yourself to love God. This is the foundational element of heart shepherding. In fact, when we talk about, hey, get on a reading plan, make time with the Lord a priority, we're not simply trying to check boxes for external righteousness sake. What do you think will aid you in directing your heart to love God more then the divine revelation that the Lord has given, the specific revelation that he's given to his people to know most acutely, most specifically, most directly, him. Why would we want to bring our hearts to anything but his word? So this isn't simply, hey, let's be good Christians and do good Christian things. This is let's be lovers of our Savior. Let's direct our wayward hearts to be thinking and guided in God's thinking, in God's person, in God's character that he's revealed to us from the pages of Scripture. God, today and every day, I'm going to choose, knowing it can only be accomplished by your grace through your spirit, but I'm going to direct myself, I'm going to direct my affections, my inner being, my heart, I'm directing it to love you above all else. That's what God calls us to. And that, that will produce a life of pleasing worship to the Lord. That's his intention for believers. So how do we do this? How do we shepherd ourselves to direct our hearts this way? And that's what we're going to talk about with the rest of our time this morning. And in your outline, first, we must understand the command to love God. We must understand the command to love God. There's submission and faith, repentance and love for God that leads into salvation for one who experiences this by God's grace. And the call is to continue in this love. We love God unto salvation and we love God in our salvation. 
We do this imperfectly in this life. We know that. We know we fall short of loving God all the ways that he should be loved. And in fact, as we saw in Philippians, and even as we've started to see already in 1 Peter, one of the most compelling things, one of the most wonderful things about heaven, about a glorified body, is that we will only obey this command perfectly in all eternity. One of the things that should incite our emotions and our desires for eternity with our Lord most is that our sin will be out of the way and we will actually love and worship God in all the ways that he truly is worthy of and deserves. Yet the call is the same. Even though we do this imperfectly, we are called to love God. And we love God first upon coming to him out of salvation. We continue to love God in our salvation. And anyone who experiences this saving work will continue in their love for God. That's the mark of a true believer, that you actually persevere to the end, that you continue in the end. And one who does not continue in love for God demonstrates that love to never actually be genuine at all. That's the parable of the seed and the sower, as well as other portions of scripture that we see. So where where do we find this command to love God? We find it in several different places. A few references just to put before you is Deuteronomy 6.5. I'll read these. They're very similar to one another. So you can write down the references and then just listen. Deuteronomy 6.5, God's instruction to Israel. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. We see it repeated several times in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 10.12 and 13 Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes which I'm commanding you today for your good. And then we see Jesus answer this question. We see it clearly expanded beyond Israel, which the obligation to love God is true for every individual for all time. And yet in the pages of scripture, we see it clearly expanded beyond just the call to Israel, but the obligation, the greatest commandment for all to follow. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-six through 38, Matthew twenty-two thirty-six through 38, Jesus is asked, teacher, Which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And we see this echoed as well in other gospel accounts. We are called to love God, directly commanded from Scripture and from Jesus' own mouth. It's the greatest commandment, the supreme commandment. It's the supreme call for every human being. And not only are we called to love God, but Jesus directly interacting with the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders said, if God were your father, you would also love me. And there's a direct correlation between loving God and loving the son. John 8, 42 is where Jesus says that. If God were your father, you would love me. Jesus is saying to the most religious, the most God-oriented, Old Testament-saturated people in the world, you don't actually know God. You don't actually love God. He is not your father. In fact, he goes so far as to say that they are of their father, the devil, which is truly what we know to be the only two cases. Either you love God and he's your father, or you hate God and you're a father of, and your father is the devil. 
What is the litmus test for knowing whether somebody is a lover of God, the true God? Well, the answer, do they love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? These things go hand in hand. Do they embrace Jesus for who he really is? Not just as some human teacher, nor just as some prophet alongside other prophets, but as the very son of God. What about John 5, 42 and 43? Jesus says to those same leaders, I know you don't have the love of God in you. I have come in my father's name and you don't receive me. Do you see the implication there? You don't have the love of God in you. How do you know that? You don't receive me, Jesus says. This is consequential with many false religions. Just think about this for a moment. Mormons, Catholics, Muslims, and the list goes on and on. Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses. Someone says, I worship the true God just like you. Uh, Jesus says, you don't worship the true God because you reject me. You didn't receive the Son of God. You don't actually embrace the Father. That is self-deception. If you think you can embrace the Father, but just reject Jesus as a prophet, as a good man, as a teacher, as a type of God, if he is anything but the Son of God, the second person of the triune God in the flesh, you actually reject the Father from Jesus' own mouth. That's the relationship between loving God and loving Jesus. You can't have the one without the other. If you truly love Jesus, you love the Father. And if you truly love the Father, you love Jesus. Not only this, but Jesus says in Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus says, whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So now you have two powerful, deep, life-transforming commands. Love God, the Father, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love Jesus more than your family, more than your spouse, more than your children, more than your mother and father, more than anything. Now, what does this mean to love? How How do we actually obey this command? to love God with all who, that we are. Well, we, we have to understand the command. God is the standard of what love is. So when we think about loving God, we have to ask ourselves, what, what does that actually mean? How do we love God? Well, the best way to understand what God's definition of love is when he calls us to love him is to look at his love expressed. We'll see the highest highest expression of the love that God calls us to when we look at him exemplifying it because he only loves perfectly. The supreme standard and and example of love or agape love, that's the, the Greek love that God directly calls us to for him, is found in in what he did in the gospel. Uh, We know and love and see on sports events Signs, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And, and we know this God so loved the world is God loved the world in this way. It's not the ex- extremeness of his love. He so loved the world. He was so p- just emotively passionate about the world that he gave his son. No, God loved in this way. This is how God expressed his love. God doesn't, need, God doesn't have little love and big love. God loves perfectly every time he loves. God loved the world in this way. This is how he did it. He 
gave of himself. He gave his only begotten son. And here we see that love is first and foremost, it's, it's sacrificial. It is sacrificial. It's a sacrifice of self for the sake of others, even for others who may care nothing at all for us and who may even hate us. It, it, is, simply a, it is not simply a feeling of affection. Affections are to be involved, but it is a determined act of the will, which always results in determined acts of self-giving. That's what it means to love. I don't love my wife because I feel really good about her. I love my wife. I wake up and say, I'm going to give of myself for my wife's benefit and blessing today. I'm going to serve her. I'm going to encourage her. I'm going to pray for her. I'm going to care for her. I'm going to step in and help out with the kids when I know she's faint-hearted. I'm going to call and tell her that I care about her to be an encouragement and a blessing to her. I'm going to stop at the store and pick up groceries, even though I'm exhausted, because she hasn't been able to make it there yet today because the kids have been sick. It's a deliberate giving of self for the benefit of others. Love is the willing, joyful desire. It's not resentful. Oh, I got to love my wife. I got to go to the store. No, you're engaged with eager joy to be this way, to put the welfare of others above your own. God didn't go, what a mess mankind has made of itself. Guess I got to send my son. <sighs> no. He deliberately, intentionally, with joy, and eagerness set forth his son. It pleased the father to crush his son. It was an act of love. Was it weighty? Yes. Was it sobering? Absolutely. Love is the willing, joyful desire to put the welfare of others above your own. In true love, there's no place for pride. There's no place for vanity. There's no place for arrogance or selfishness or self-seeking or self-glory. There's no expectation of what must be done in return. We can't love God this way. God, I'm going to love you. And as a result, I know things will really go well for me in this life. God, I loved you. I did all this for you. Look at what I did. And you allowed this to happen in my life? No, we can't be that way. We, we simply love God and trust, trust in his character. Jesus goes so far to say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Obviously, God is no longer our enemy. He was at one point in time, but as believers, we've been reconciled to God. But the disposition of love without expectation in return is the kind of love that God calls us to. And we see this love expressed in God himself. If God so loved us that even while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, Ephesians 5, and if, or I'm sorry, Romans 5 and Ephesians 2, how much more should we love others this same way? And certainly we should love God this way. God gets to set the standard of what our love is to be. And this is so consequential, especially in our culture right now, where everybody is able to declare their own truth. Everybody is able to declare how they must be loved. No, God sets the standard of love. God says what is loving. And God calls to us to love him sacrificially, faithfully, humbly. God's standard is an abandoning of self 
in full-fledged commitment to him. So how do we do this? How do we love God this way? What is our hope for rising to God's standard? This is a sobering standard. We probably on our own would have much better opportunity to love God simply emotionally (laughs) than to love God this way. We could probably figure out a way to conjure up emotions about anything. But what God's calling us to is far more than just emotional living, but deliberate intention of the will to give of self for his good. So how do we do this? Well, God is actually the source of this love. God is the source. So God is first the standard of our love, but God is also the source of our love. Remember the story about the Pharisee who asked Jesus to come to dinner in Luke 7? There's a Pharisee asked Jesus to come to to dinner. Luke 7, Jesus comes in the door. The Pharisee didn't wash Jesus' feet. He didn't kiss Jesus. He didn't embrace Jesus. He didn't do anything to show affection or devotion to Jesus. Then there was this woman of the street, a lowly sinful prostitute, And she leans over Jesus' bare feet, weeping, washing them, anointing his dirty feet. Her tears are falling on his dirty feet. She's taking her hair and washing Jesus' feet with her hair. It's an incredibly compelling scene that we see. The Pharisee is all worked up and says to Jesus, "If, if you're a prophet, you would know what kind of woman this is. Self-righteousness is just dripping from him. He says, she's a sinner. Jesus tells the Pharisee a story. A man who had two debtors, one owed him roughly $5,000, one owed him $5. He forgave them both. And Jesus asks, who loves him more? Who will love that one more? And the Pharisee says, well, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says, you've judged rightly. He says, when I came in here, you didn't kiss me. You didn't wash my feet. Why? Because he viewed himself as not needing a savior. He was righteous enough. But since the moment he came in, she's wept over his feet. She's washed his feet. Why? Why is this lowly, sinful, prostitute woman distinguished above this self-righteous Pharisee, she knew, she knew how much she had been forgiven. She knew this, the sin, the magnitude of her sin. So where does love come from? It actually comes from being stunned by being loved by God. This love comes from being overwhelmed by the person of Jesus dying on our behalf. We actually love, the source of our love flows out of God's love for us. Love comes from being overwhelmed by the person of Christ, that he would die on our behalf, that he would rise again and conquer death. Though we have no merit at all in and of ourselves, we're forgiven and reconciled to God. When that grips you when, you, when you taste what it is to treasure Jesus, to delight in Jesus, to be satisfied in Jesus, when you see yourself rightly as a hopeless, helpless, godless sinner who has been saved by grace that you never deserve, that you could never garner, 
There was no remedy outside of grace. That was the only hope that you had. You would never be able to repay the debt. And yet God has made a way. That's where love flows out of here. 1 John 4.19, John makes it clear. He just says simply, we love because he first loved us. That's why we love. That's why we can love. Christianity, what Jesus demands of us, is not most deeply and most fundamentally decisions of the will, making a good decision in a specific circumstance. That comes later. First and foremost, Christianity is a new birth that we've been seeing in 1 Peter. It's a deep, profound transformation of what we treasure and who we are at the core. We don't get our act together to be Christians. God transforms us. God gives us a, a new life, a new birth in him. With that new birth comes new desires, new affections, new allegiances, new identities, and then we live in light of that. our deepest love isn't for Jesus, Jesus says we're not worthy of him. And being worthy of Jesus doesn't mean deserving Jesus. It means being appropriate as a redeemed, forgiven person to be in fellowship with him. When he is your supreme treasure, you actually belong with him. So, so where do we find this love? We, we see it exemplified in God himself. We see it expressed in Jesus as well. Where is it sourced? It's sourced in God himself. If we want to love this way, we need to seek the Lord. Seek his help. Help, help me to recognize the depths of your forgiveness and what you have given me in the gospel and let your love for me produce a love and response for you. Next, what must we understand about this command? Well, we are to engage all of our faculties in our love for God. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. What does it mean to love the Lord with, with all your heart? What's my heart? Well, the heart in the Hebrew understanding is the core of your identity. We talked about that a little bit earlier, the source of all your thoughts, words, or actions. Proverbs 4.23, again, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it flow the wellspring of life. It's the core of your being. Love God with the deepest, purest, truest part of you. Your deepest identity of who you are. Love God. Your soul. Well, that, that also has to do with the emotions. It was Jesus who said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful in Matthew 26, 38. He was speaking of his soul as the seed of emotions. Mind may be best seen as the will or the power of intention, the power of purpose. We sometimes say, hey, I made up my mind to do this. This is a, a kind of clarification of, of might in the sense. And then Jesus adds strength, the reference to physical energy. So the intellectual, emotional, volitional, and physical elements of your being all combine to love the one true God. It is an intelligent love that is accompanied by right emotions. We direct our emotions, how they should think with truth, how they should be directed with truth. It is a willing love, and it is an active love. It is an all-encompassing love. That's what God calls us to, that we engage all of who we are in this. Do we do this perfectly? No. So what do I do if I don't feel like loving God? You direct yourself to love him anyway. 
Well, we've talked about this before. You fight what you feel with what you know to be true. When your emotions are wayward, and we all know that they can be extremely fickle, we direct them how we should feel. We're going to see in 1 Peter 2 a command to desire God's word. How do I how do I crave something? How do I direct myself to have a desire for something? How do I direct myself to have a craving for something? Well, we'll find out. <laughs> but you're called to love God, to engage your emotions in your love for God. But not that only. It's also to be expressed in acts of obedience and deliberate sacrificial service, commitment to. So we're to direct ourselves to love God in the, this self-abandoning, self-giving devotion at the core of every part of who we are. How do we do this? We'll spend our last 10 minutes or so talking about embracing the command to love God, and we will most definitely spend the rest of our lives trying to grow in this practice as well. Embrace the command to love God. How can we do this? What are some practical helps for us to love God as he deserves, to love God as he commands? Well, first, meditate on God's love for you in Jesus. Let that be a daily practice in your heart shepherding, to spend intentional time in prayer, remembering what you've been forgiven, what you deserve, what you've been given in Christ. Remember the story we just talked about of the woman who had been forgiven much. Renew your mind intentionally and regularly with the truth of the gospel. Paul says it is of first importance. It's by the gospel we're saved. And he says it's upon the gospel that we stand. Remember the immeasurable love of Jesus that he would die for you. Let your inner being, the heart level, let your emotions be aroused by the reality of what we know you deserve, what each one of us deserves, and what we've been given in Christ. There's just no act of self-giving service or commitment to Christ that actually even measures up when we ponder the act of self-giving love expressed on the cross. When we love God perfectly, we are only doing what's expected and right. God, God sent Christ Christ lived perfect, perfectly on this earth, holy in every way, went to the cross, was crucified, and bore the wrath of God for every single sin, for every believer of all time. The greatest, greatest expression of love is found in Christ. And he calls us to love him. Remember this. Remember Christ's love for you, intentionally. What else? Guard yourself from idols. Guard your heart, shepherd your heart, direct your heart intentionally away from what you know is or are competing affections for God. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, then he kind of summarizes all of the love for world in three categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Your indulgence in your fleshly lusts, and fleshly lusts is just worldly passions, 
worldly passions. It's not sexual only, although that's certainly a part of it. But these fleshly lusts, your indulgence in the lust of the eyes, what you long for, what you see and think, that will satisfy me. The boastful pride of life, that is your gaining for yourself accolades in this life. Those things, those idols, those loves within this world, they will distract and they will inhibit your ability to love God as you ought. And in turn, a life given to these things is evidence that God's love does not dwell in you. That's sobering. When we think about our life's pursuits, our life's desires, our life's goals, what do you sacrifice for the most? Is it your job? Is it your family? Is it money? I sacrifice because there's these financial goals that I've set up for myself that I've got to achieve. Or maybe I, my family's just got to be in, in line. Everything's got to be tidied up and everything centers and revolves around my family. Is it what others think of you? I, I've got a reputation to maintain. Look, look, at, look at the promotion I got. Look what I've accomplished in my, in my life. Those types of pursuits above a pursuit from God will only distract in your love for Christ. Now, what does that not mean? We have to provide for our families. We have to be engaged in our homes. We have to be faithful with what the Lord has given to us. We're, we're called to those things. Let those things flow out of a love for God. Don't let those things flow out of a love for things or something other than God. So the remedy is not go quit your job, become a monk, live in the forest, and pray for 24 hours a day. The praying for 24 hours a day wouldn't be awful. That'd be good. But you gotta be faithful with what the Lord's given you, but let that faithfulness flow out of a love for God, not a commitment and devotion to this world. At the very, very end of 1 John, what does he also say? 1 John 5, 21. It almost, if you read through 1 John, it almost feels like it's ending abruptly. Like, wait, there's got to be more to say here. But I think it's actually a pretty compelling mic drop. He says, little children, guard yourself from idols. <laughs> All he's talked about is love for God, love for Jesus, love for the word, love for your brothers, Separation from the world, separation from the evil one, separation from the flesh. How does he sum it all up? Hey, young ones, keep, just keep yourself from idols. Anything that would compete with your affections and love and devotion to God, guard yourself from that. And then lastly, scrutinize your love for God. Test it. Evaluate it. I don't want to be self-deceived. I don't want to be one of those who says, Lord, Lord, look at what I did for you. Allow your love for God to be scrutinized with God's word itself. Test yourself in light of scripture. We already talked about the relationship between loving Jesus and loving God. Do you love Jesus? How is that expressed? Where are you giving of self for the love of your Savior? Where are you committed to Christ. Do you love the things that Jesus loves? 
That's a helpful evaluator. If you say you love Jesus, but you don't like his word, you don't like his bride, you don't want to be with his people, you don't want to worship him, even as Omri said a couple weeks ago when he preached on Psalm 22, it was so insightful and so helpful. If you think you're going to love heaven, but you hate worshiping God with the people of God, why do you think you're going to like heaven? <laughs> That's what it's about. If you think you love God, but you hate his word, you hate his people, you hate his bride, you hate his standards, I don't want to live the, I don't want to wait, I don't want to live the way he says to live. Why do you actually think you love God? Also, is, is there fruit in your life? John 14, 15 is helpful when we think about loving Jesus. Oftentimes we equate obedience is love. And there is an element to that. But actually, obedience reveals love. Love isn't only obedience, but love produces obedience. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not how you love me is exclusively found in keeping his commandments, although that flows out of it. Love is much more than simply obeying his commandments, but the fruit of love for Jesus is obedience. Is there growing obedience to Christ in your life? Scrutinize your love for God. Where it's weak, where it's not that all that it ought. Grow. Intentionally love God better. And it shouldn't shock us. It shouldn't be a, a threat or a huge blow to our, to our ego or our pride to, to recognize that we don't love God as we ought. There should be enough humility in us to want that exposed, to be willing to have that exposed, to invite that exposure even through one another. Hey, where, where do you see my love for God realized, expressed? Where do you see me weak in my love for God? That'd be a great question to ask in your fellowship groups, to ask one another in your breakout groups. And as we ponder this command, we must come back to the reality that each of us can only do this because of his great love for us. We love because he first loved us. And we just have to be compelled. We, we have to be awed. We should be shocked by the amazing love that the Lord of the universe has expressed towards us, that he would set his affections and give of himself sacrificially for our good. How, how could we not want to abandon ourselves? How could we think doing anything other than abandoning ourselves and offering ourselves to him in love and devotion to be used for his purposes and ultimately for his glory? H how could we view anything else as right or appropriate or better than that? We have the privilege as sons of the most high God to give of ourselves in service to the creator, the eternal one, who would lavish, lavish grace upon us and love us so perfectly, who would grant to us forgiveness, eternity with him, fellowship with him. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your love, and we do plead with you to help us love you as we ought. Lord, we pray for Gilbert Bible Church. We pray for each one of us that we as men would commit ourselves rightly and fully to loving you 
guard us from hypocrisy, guard us from pharisaical self-righteous tendencies that would want to look to ourselves and all that we've accomplished. Help us, help us simply to be faithful and diligent this day with loving you. Lord, give us the strength, give us the power, give us the, the steadfastness and endurance to do this. We know it only goes well for us before you when we come under your authority and submission. And so help us to do that and produce in us and around us all the things that you desire for your glory and for our good. And we ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.